3: Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. I recognize that uh, we all have different definitions of success. For some, it's a sizable paycheck. Mine is helping people wake up and inspiring them to accomplish their goals and live their very best life. These are my passions, and that's what I'm going to do for you. I want you to stop tripping over small challenges and prepare to rise above the bigger obstacles that life will present to you. The Money Making conversation interviews provide relatable information to the listener by career and financial planning, entrepreneurship, motivation, leadership, overcoming the odds, and how to live a balanced life. My next guest was born in Washington, D.C., but was raised in Durham, North Carolina. That is where where his journey started, to become a legendary style icon and uh, former creative director of Vogue magazine. His new memoir, the chiffon trenches, offers a candid look at who's who of the last 50 years of fashion. This engaging memoir tells with raw honesty the story of how he not only survived the brutal style landscape, but thrive despite racism, illicit rumors, and all the other challenges of this notoriously cutthroat industry to become one of the most renowned voices and faces in fashion. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Mr. Andre Leon Talley.
1: Good morning, Roshan. How are you? Pretty good, good my morning. friend.
3: Uh, let's get to, to let's, let's, it. Uh, thank yeah. you for calling in on Money Making Conversation, sir.
1: Yeah, my yeah. pleasure. Happy
3: to be with you. Let's let's talk about your style on the cover because I was reading the book, and in the book, there's a photo in 1983 mm-hmm. that shows you sporting a very similar hat to what you're sporting on the cover right now. And then yeah. I go further back. There's a similar style, but there's much more, more of a floppy brim on it now. Correct. Okay, <laughs> you know I'm a fashion guy, I, I, so so I loved you. I, I had a great time reading the book, but let's talk about this look on the cover, right quick. This hat that I saw yeah. in 1983, but an earlier version, early with a floppy brim.
1: Yeah, that hat is the same hat that's taken in a photograph in 1983. It's the same hat I took in a photograph on the cover, and that is the hat that I uh, I've I've had most of my adult life. It I was bought in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a classic boater. And the floppy one was a Paris hat. That was a hat that had been bought and purchased in Paris. And I don't have that floppy one, the early one. I don't know where it is. May have it at home in the closet. I'm not sure.
3: Right. But the
1: one I have uh, on the cover and in 83, it's a hat that's always traveled with me. I've kept it all this time. And it is my signature hat. I love the hat.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. It's a hat that I think the, it expresses who I am. I, I think it's classic. I think it's it, it, it symbolizes jazz, blues. Right. Right. Creativity and and elegance.
3: Well, you know, I, I've worn hats, you know, I don't wear hats anymore like I used to. And mm. when I go I had like several of them, like three different styles. And you 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 mm. locked into a signature brand, which is commendable.
1: <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so
3: so but you had to go through several before you got to this one hat. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well I did, I did, I did. I, as I said the one the floppy, soft, floppy one mm-hmm. uh was a very beautiful hat from Paris, France. Mm-hmm. It came to me in about the seventies. Well, as a child, I was drawn to, to, to hats. And I, I think I had beautiful hats when I was a child. Like, right. you know, going to church. Uh, not ex- extravagant as these straw hats. Mm-hmm. But, you know, felt hats and snow caps and ski caps and all that kind of stuff. I've always been drawn to a hat. I think it's just a Exclamation point to your look!
3: Absolutely, you know it's really interesting. In your book, you say you found your fantasy world in books, records, and classical music. Nina Simone, mm-hmm. Aretha Franklin, and at yeah, yeah. the age of twelve, your world became the glossy pages of Vogue talk about that journey of those because i know that i always tell people you you find yourself when you're young and if you and Mm -hmm. really if you understand that's what your gifts really are that when you're in your 40s and 50s you should be making money money off your gifts if you stick to
1: it well i did i did i made money i got good paychecks in vogue for (laughs) 38 odd years someone asked me in england on a a, a radio show why did you stay there for so long and i said because of the paychecks right it was good paychecks (laughs) well you know and when I discovered Vogue magazine in New York, the Durham Public Library, it was a revelation to me. It was a world that I was unexposed to in my home, and it was a beautiful world. It was a world of literature, art, music, glamorous people, famous people, beautiful people. And it was a, a world of substance and style, and I just gravitated towards that. I loved Vogue, and I loved any sort of um, tributary that... Came off the river Vogue, Life Magazine, Sally Kirkland was a great editor. She had great fashion stories, New York Times fashion supplements. So I just, I was an only child and mm-hmm. I just was pretty much was a loner. Right. And I, when people were playing basketball or baseball, I was in my house tearing out the pages of Vogue, not for the beautiful pictures only, but for the words, for what the words spoke to me, right. the, the stories spoke to me, the way that people looked in their homes spoke to me. The way the men, they had a column called Men in Vogue by Camille Duhay. Right. He was French. He lived in New York, and I met him. And he he just, the, the, his column, Men in Vogue, this is just where I wanted to be. You know, they wore velvet jackets. They wore shirts with ruffles. They wore velvet slippers. And it was all very much what I wanted to be. And I, I dreamed about this world. And I suddenly was thrust into this world. By 1983, I went to Vogue as a news editor in 1983. By 1988.
3: I was promoted to creative director of Vogue. Well, you know first black man ever. Well, I don't want to get to Vogue yet because your journey to Vogue is an interesting one. And that's, that's a compelling one because in the book you talk about, you know, when I don't talk about it, mm-hmm. these are actual dealing with racism, dealing with rumors, yeah, yeah. dealing with lies, dealing with name calling mm-hmm. and all that. But let's even go mm-hmm. further back when you're in your youth, when you when mm-hmm. your, your parents uh, brought you from D.C., to live with your great-grandmother and your grandmother. And, uh, my grandmother. Your grandmother. Yeah. Talk, tell us about that experience, because that, that's where your faith really was.
1: Uh, was, was Well, uh, growing up in my grandmother's house, as the only child, I was pampered. I was spoiled. I was totally Was that a good thing? Was my,
3: that a good, good thing, you being pampered and spoiled? Was that a good thing?
1: Yes, it was. Okay, good. It was. I was <laughs> pampered and spoiled, but also I was given the great uh, lessons of life mm-hmm. and examples, such as values church discipline. I had chores. Right. I had to make up my bed perfectly, as Michelle Obama taught our daughters to make up the beds perfectly in the White House. I had to polish the floors with Johnson's paste wax. I had to go outside in the woods and chop the wood for the uh, fires. Mm-hmm. And when I was very young, we, had, we did not have an electric stove. We didn't get an electric stove until about the 60s. Right? I remember my great-grandmother and my grandmother always cooking on an a iron, a cast-iron stove and I'll never forget that stove. It was about 58. And that stove had to be constantly stoked with wood and coal. And I would go out and have to get the cuddles, scuttles of coal, even in the snow, in the w- cold weather, and stoke that wood-burning stove. That stove heated the kitchen. It had a side, um, a, a container where you boiled water, where you had constantly hot, boiling water mm. for the house, for household duties. So this was a, a very important thing in my life. And so all of these choices led to, to the good, conservative, old-fashioned values, values. and verities that people have in the South when they are Black and growing up in the Black, segregated Jim Crow South. I mean, we the, the Civil Rights Law was signed over in 1963, but I grew up in this great household from the 50s and into 63. By 63, I was in high school. I think I was in the tenth grade. Absolutely. So it was just it was just a very wonderful world. Uh, my grandmother she she was a domestic maid at Duke University for fifty years. She finally retired, and the last thirty years of her life she was re- retiree. But she just got up and she was like a pioneer woman. She was strong. Mm-hmm. You know, you have these images of pioneer women. These women can do anything. They they can cook. They can squirrel skin a rabbit, skin a squirrel. Make a squirrel stew, Brunswick stew out of a squirrel. You know they would kill a squirrel. Absolutely. I remember Taste it my like grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and and just do all everything, and plus do all the laundry, the household laundry, cook, clean, scrub, sit down, read her missionary helper. Get up on Sunday morning, cook cook, cook a pan of biscuits for me before church. Come home after church and cook the afternoon supper, fried chicken and greens or string beans and sweet potatoes and just it's just a simple world the world was a world that had foundations that carry, i've carried on throughout my life so so I the
3: think. so the fact that your your, your great grandmother and your grandmother raised you in durham that really laid the foundation for who you are today versus your parents Absolutely. raising you
1: Absolutely. But well, my parents were always in my life. My mother and father lived in D.C. and they were not domestic workers; right. they were uh, a grade a grade level government workers, mm-hmm. and they always supported my my upbringing, my schooling, and my. They gave me everything I wanted. They would send money down to my grandmother every two weeks for my you know books. Uh, I had wonderful clothes. I had the first set of World Book encyclopedias on my street. That was I was very proud of. That Record I still player. have them in my.
3: throw it all out. Out there. Come on, Andre.
1: Don't yeah, I, I had, your daddy I had was doing players. it. Your yeah, daddy was doing that for you. <laughs> typewriters, record players, mm-hmm. supplement allowance, so I could then go to stop going to the library to read Vogue. I would go buy Vogue. It, right. It came out twice a month in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Reeland published it on the first and the fifteenth of every month. Now that was the fee, and I would go across town on Sundays when it was coming out the magazine. I looked forward. That was my big, you know, outing to go buy Vogue magazine. So I think I had a privileged upbringing, although I was in a very restrained space in the world of blackness in right. the segregated South.
3: But but in that whole process, the creative process, you know, when I, the, that's all that just keeps, you were allowed to be you. Am I saying that yes. right?
1: Yeah, you, perfect. you said it perfectly. Mm-hmm. I was allowed to be me. My grandmother did not. As long as I did the right thing, I could just do anything. My grandmother gave me free reign, and I sat back, and I had a room of my own, and I read Vogue, and I listened to Laura Nino, Lero, Nina Simone, Mozart, Beethoven, Mahalia Jackson. I listened to my records. I had my own world, and books, books were my friends. I had some friends, but books were my friends, and Vogue was my friend. I mean, I, I, I lived for Vogue magazine.
3: Now, you, but you talk about some you know, nasty kids and bullying and, and when yeah, we look back yeah. on, you know, everybody thinks like bullying started, you know, recently. Bullying started- oh,
1: no, 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 no. Oh, it was awful. But you know what? When when I go back home now and see my friends, I've maintained good friends from mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. I can look at them and say, hey, look, look at me now. How you doing? How I'm doing? I, I, I'm out in the world. You know, I've got a book. I've had a documentary called The Gospel According to Andre. Mm-hmm. I went there and showed it at Hillside High School. I showed it in one of their great weeks. They had me there for three days. We showed the film. We had events around it. They gave me the mayor gave me the seat to the kitty and a proclamation, et cetera, et cetera. So you know when you go to those those uh, high school reunions, yes, you sir. can say, "Look, I'm okay. I'm okay."
3: You know, uh, and I I, you, I can feel you okay. I, I like to believe that uh, the one of my, one of the best lines of your book was that you know you're in your 70s, but you feel like you're 29. Thank, that, you. thank that, you. that's that's my favorite line because I tell people that. You know, it's it's, it's a mindset. Yeah. It's a it's how mindset. you how you walk, how you communicate. I'm not trying mm-hmm. you're not trying to say you being 29. You just said uh, the mentality. Uh,
1: uh, the mindset. I am fresh.
3: Come on Andre, curious. tell them about it. Tell them about it.
1: I wake up every day ready to learn something new. I attack, I am fresh. I'm still learning knowledge. And thank God I had early on this uh, passion for books and book reading. When I turn the page of a book in this pandemic, if I'm sitting down with a book, it is a happy moment for me to sit down on my front porch and turn the page of a new book that's coming in the mail from Amazon. I mean, I just got a whole slew of James Baldwin books. I think that James Baldwin... What he did and wrote and said in his 60s is so relevant today. So all this summer, I've been reading everything I could get in my hands on by James Baldwin, mm-hmm. including his last interview in 1987 before he passed away. And that came to me last week. And I, I've been just reading. And I'm I'm just—every day you can learn something new. I was young. I, was, I loved fashion. By the way, I always say, as Judge Judy says— they don't keep me here for my looks. They keep me here because I'm smart. Okay.
3: Well, well, that is
1: my motto. That is my motto. They don't keep me here for my looks. They keep me here because I'm
3: smart. It's smart in so many ways. You know, learning French, which you know, which allowed yes. you to go over yes. to France and, uh, and yes. a, b- participate yes. in the pa- fluently participate in the yes. Past yes. fashion yes. world. But more important, yes. now, before we end this break, I want to talk about you graduated from HBCU, North Carolina Central University. Central University, yeah. And, uh, uh, was that significant for you then or is it more significant for you now that you graduated from HBCU
1: uh, it's more significant for me now because I'm proud of that I was proud of NCCU mm-hmm. and I, I, I that's where I got the scholarship to go to Brown University Absolutely. It, it, my master's degree
3: Absolutely. so I'm proud
1: of that it, it, it means a lot to me
3: why did you write this book why did you write this book
1: I wrote the book because I felt that I was approaching the seventh decade of my life. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I had to leave a legacy recorded by me, factual. I had so many stories to tell that were great. I had so many scars that I healed, my wounds healed it. Um, You know, I experienced racism, Mm -hmm. ageism, sexism Mm -hmm. in my career. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that it was important. And And luckily, the book came out at a timely moment. When we, everyone is talking about systemic racism in our country, right uh you know tearing down the monuments, the confederate flag, right. our terrible president, the whole thing Absolutely. and um I felt that I had to write this book because I had done a I had participated in a great documentary that came out of me in 2018 called "The Gospel, according to Andre. And the love that I saw from the people who watched that documentary, not only famous people, but just people, in normal people walking the streets, so I saw your documentary, I love it so much, I saw my, that gave me the confidence to write the book. The mm-hmm. book was a no-brainer for me. I sat down and wrote the book all from memory. I don't have notes, I don't have diaries, I don't have journals, it comes all from my memory
3: well you know it's really uh, i can tell because it's like little little nuggets you drop in you know
0: it's finally here the season of celebration and no matter how you celebrate with family and friends whether you're preparing for reyes magos or karamu lighting the menorah or going to midnight mass kohl's has just what you need to make those traditions special plus you'll find gifts for all your loved ones send warm wishes with cozy fleeces sweaters loungewear blankets and throws
2: t-t-e-r dot a-i
1: like, yeah a, yeah like, they you just know,
3: come you, to me just right, you know and that that's the beauty of people realize when you write the book you know first you just, you just write out and the general thoughts that you remember you know some yeah. of the layers start dropping in there like yeah, when you were shopping in pairs with Diana Ross that's
1: which, right <laughs>
3: Tell us about that. That was
1: a moment. That Mm -hmm. was a revelation for me. Mm -hmm. Donna Ross, the first time I ever met Donna Ross, I was having lunch with her in Paris at this famous restaurant called Maxime's. I know that. I've eaten
3: there. I've eaten
1: there. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know that it's in films, Maxime's has been Mm -hmm. in films, uh, the film Gigi, uh, a great technicolor film in the 50s. Maxine's is a, a, a moment of style. And on a Saturday morning, we were going into Maxine's, uh, uh, Betty Catrou and Francois Catrou and I, and Pierre Cardin and Diana Ross was coming in for lunch. And she came in with this amazing fur coat to the ground. We had lunch and we went straight to the jeweler store. And I was so impressed because it was the first time I had ever witnessed, you know, I was young. I was in Paris, I was 27. A black woman went into a very fancy jewelry store in Paris of a faux bull. They didn't ask for a credit card. They said, yes, Ms. they knew she was Miss Ross, of course. This could have been an imposter drag queen. They sent the jewels to her hotel. No checks were issued. No bill of sale. No questions. Miss Ross, you will get these bracelets in your hotel by five o'clock. And, you know, of course they did. They, 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 She'd asked what the prices were. And then she turned and she said, Would you like a little present? And I said, Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, was,
3: you was, said, don't. No, come on, Andre. You said, No.
1: Well, you weren't allowed to take gifts. My my company wasn't allowed oh, okay. me to take gifts from okay. someone. Mm, okay. So I thought if I got a bracelet from Donna Ross, and they see they they fire me. So it was ethically incorrect for me to take the bracelet. But I was so impressed that a woman of color could go into Paris, walk into a store, no matter, and just be respected the way Donna Ross was. They didn't say, "Oh, may we see your credit cards?" or "May we see your identity?" They may we see your passport. We could we call your bank. It was a Saturday afternoon. They right. recognized her and they said, Miss Ross, mm-hmm. these will be delivered to you this evening for you to wear, for we were going out that night for dinner. And they were delivered and she came to dinner in these bracelets.
3: I tell you, I'm, I'm talking to Andre Leon at the book, The Chiffon Trenches. Andre, i like to believe that uh, it all kind of started for you in 1974 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art Institute and uh, a fantastic lady who took you under the wing. I want to say her name, right, Diane Freeland.
1: Diane Freeland. Diane Vreeland. Diane Vreeland.
3: I know I had to get that name right, because <laughs> this day, this young lady, she's the juice for youth, man. She's the juice. Oh, for
1: oh, oh, she she was the, she was the, the the empress, the oracle. She was the mountain top. Mm-hmm. She was the most important fashion woman of her time. Mm-hmm. She was the fashion editor of Vogue from sixty one to seventy one. She'd been at Harper's Bazaar for twenty eight years as the only senior fashion editor. She made images that are now legendary at bizarre and at Vogue. And everyone who is anyone who's in fashion today or who wants to say they've got style had to be approved by Deanna Vreeland. And there I was, her volunteer in 74 for six weeks on a show called Hollywood Design, where I learned everything from Deanna Vreeland. I mean, there's a school of Vreeland. And in school, is you don't go to school and get a certificate. You just be in her presence and you learn by listening. Mm-hmm. I learned from her by listening. The way she described clothes, mm-hmm. the way she described the linings, mm-hmm. she gave as much focus to the lining of a dress as she did to the outside of a dress. Right. Her sh- shoes were polished with the soles of her shoes. Not the uppers. Her soles were polished with a rhinoceros horn. I don't know why, but her soles of her shoes well, were polished like the uppers. Her $5 bills, they didn't have uh, Uber cars and limos at the curb. People took taxis in New York. Her maid, French, Yvonne, what's her name, would would iron her $5 bills to put in her envelope evening bags when she went out for dinner so she'd have money to get a cab home. She had her newspapers ironed so she didn't want to read a wrinkled newspaper in the bathtub. She had the newspapers ironed. She had the soles of her shoes polished. Polished. Now, it sounds superficial, but what does that stand for? Discipline maintenance. Cleanliness is close to godliness. This is what she stood for. These were rituals that came from an Edwardian. She grew up at the end of the 1990s in Paris. And this is just the kind of ritual that she believed in, the way my grandma believed in waxing the polished floors with paste wax. These are just things you do to keep yourself up to keep your to keep your values up you you see a polished floor you're happy
3: and you, mrs Andrew, you saw she, pr- she, she grew up when?
1: when she was she was born in eighteen ninety, so okay. she grew up in the end of the Edwardian era okay, cool. that was okay, like cool. 1900s to 1920s right right, right, right right in paris so mm-hmm. the belle Epoque, she the, she was a young girl at the Belle Epoque, you know when they mm-hmm. had courtesans mm-hmm. and the coronations of the king and she saw all these wonderful things and she she just loved uh the, the horses and the way the horses were decked out and they were just as decked out as the people, the saddles and the reins and the the the, 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 the horse riders. Everything she described was so narrative. She told every dress in an exhibit would have a story behind it yeah. because every dress, who is wearing the dress? Yeah. Where does she wear it? Right. Who was she? And what does she mean to the world? Absolutely. That's what was important to awesome. her.
3: You know, the interesting thing in reading your book was that every page I turn was a nugget to me, a, a, a really you know a golden so, nugget. I hope uh, a golden. It's golden nugget. Well, there's no iron pie right here, my friend. This is golden nuggets here, okay? <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, and reason I, say, when I when I say that is the the fact that uh, it, it could have been expanded more. It could have been more yeah, than just oh, one no, or I've two to, pages.
1: Listen, Rashawn, there's a third book in me because. I had the contract and I'm proud of the contract I had from uh, Pendum, penguin Raven in the house Valentine. Mm-hmm. But the contract said it, I only had to write eighty thousand uh, words. Right. I could have written hundred and sixty thousand words. But this is the book they wanted to they wanted to publish a book for a certain size. Right. Uh, you know, the format. But I could have written hundred and sixty thousand. I could have still been writing to this day and still could
3: be writing. Well, because there's interesting stories. Like, you know, like the whole period when you started out, of course, you know, and then uh, you basically was starving or then that Christmas period when uh, when she told you yeah, not to said, leave. She said, don't go home. She said, don't, don't go, go home. home. Don't go home. There's nothing at home. And it's really true. You know, when you go back, man, it kind of like breaks your values, breaks your motivation. You fall back in yeah. old habits. And that's what she yeah, was telling yeah. you. And then that whole Paris run, which was yeah. a genius period of your life, I feel, because... The
1: moment, the zenith moment of my life. Yeah,
3: because of the fact that, first of all, you're a black man, tall black man. Yeah. Speaking first. Only
1: one on the front row, only person on the front row black.
3: But then, but then, that's when it turns dark in your life. You know the.
1: Well, it turns the, dark because people are jealous and racism has come yes, up. Yes, people yes, People call yes. me Queen Kong. Yes. Sir. Allegedly, one girl called me Queen Kong, and it took the Paloma Picasso, the daughter of the famous artist Picasso, to tell me. And she said, "You know, this girl is going around Paris and calling you Queen Kong, and people are laughing at you. But I love you." And I said, "Okay," and then I just kept it bottled up, and I never told anyone about that until so i had this documentary and i sat down and talked about it mm-hmm. in the vogue uh archives and i revealed that in 2017 and this this was a hurting thing you know this was hurting me and then one of my bosses came and said one day stood up in the office and said we've heard you've been sleeping with every designer in paris men and women and i thought well god that's what that, i would be so busy am i a stud what is this and then i realized how racist this was right i recently had an email from the man saying what a great book it was but he didn't know at that time how hurtful he was you know what i did i went off and in a week later i resigned i quit women's with daily and the doors open and i wouldn't have gotten to vogue had i stayed at women's with daily in the position that i was in because i thought this door is going to close I went to the Madeleine Church. This is a church where Josephine Baker was funeralized mm-hmm. in Paris.
3: Lit the candles, the three day. candles, right?
1: Yeah, I lit the candles, and I went back, wrote my letter of resignation, had it notarized at the British American Embassy, the American consulate, and then received, sent it to the office because I thought I was smart. I thought I'd better have this letter to prove that I resigned and wasn't fired because, you know, right. they could say, Oh, well Andre was you know, there was Horrible. money was missing from the petty mm-hmm. cash. No,
3: no. Mm-hmm. Money
1: missing from the petty cash.
3: Yes, yes.
1: And they were yes. already accusing me of stealing sketches from East Laurent and passing right. them off as Juventus. Based on your relationship the- with
3: Gavinci, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, Givenchy. Mm-hmm. Say Givenchy, Givenchy. Okay, good. Cool. Sorry, I'm sorry. Given she. You gotta you go uh, get Givenchy.
3: me right, Andre. You gonna get it right now. You know, this is your world now. Keep it <laughs> keep me rolling right, my friend. I read a great uh, book. But I know I was gonna throw out one name badge you gonna correct me on. <laughs> tell <laughs> one your one
1: wife check. I said it <laughs> <you> I, <said, laughs> <laughs> I told you I'd say Givenchy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Oh you my know when you say You know when you're tired you gotta say the names right. You can't go say you know, like the girls say, say Versace. Yes. Versace yes.
3: for Versace. Yes. It's Versace, yes. not Versace. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, it, 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 I, it's one part of the book I love that I want to talk about your experience if we, when you went to, for one year only, Ebony and Ebony. Yeah. Ebony. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a great moment for me. That was, that, I, I, you know, okay, I'm telling you, why I
3: loved it. I'm lo- telling you why I loved it. You said, okay, they, they didn't know what I, your your family didn't know anything about what you were doing in Paris. But once no. they found out you work for Ebony and Jet, Lordy, our baby then made it. Our baby then yeah,
1: yeah. made <laughs> it. I, they made it. He made it. He made. I made it. That was the greatest year. Oh, Mrs. Johnson was a great woman. She was a fabulous lady. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, Mrs. Johnson! I learned so much. She has such style, and you know she started the Ebony Fashion Fair. That Absolutely. was her idea. That was her. And that- she took it all through all over the country the Virgin Islands these fashion shows. She showed the world what style could be. Her fashion fair shows were. Legendary. Yes, it was. And she would go to Paris and buy all these extraordinary clothes. She didn't sit and buy a little doll suit. She knew that the people, when they went to the show, they wanted to see extravagance, fantasy. Mm, right. She'd buy the most extra extraordinary pieces and paid for them full price. Yes. And she started doing it in the 50s. So before I got to Paris, she was the only black person on the front row, mm-hmm. and they respected her pocketbook and her style and her expertise. She was highly respected and revered in the world of fashion in Paris. Mr. Celeron, Mrs. when I got to Ebony Magazine, Miss Johnson said to me, Andre, Andre, you got to get me a picture with E. Celeron. I want to have a picture with you and E. Celeron. And I thought, no, that's why she hired me just to get that picture. Well, the first time we went to Paris on the Concord, Mm -hmm. backstage, I had the picture with E. Celeron and Mrs. Johnson and myself. And I had that boat on. I had that same hat on. (laughs) With a Georgia, brown Georgia Armani suit. Cocked to the side. Cocked to the side. I had that hat on. Well, let let, let me
3: skip. I know we're running out of time, but I had to get this one story. And I'm mad because I looked. There's no picture of you. Wearing this, so I was kind of mad at you. Here, it was okay. the, it was the when you when you broke code and you went yeah. to this black tie event, we- wearing that gown over the shirt yeah, no, and those gray
1: socks. Yeah, bathrobe, bathrobe, bath. Carl Lagerfeld's cashmere bathrobe dressing gown. Yes, yes. And yes. I, I had to go across. I didn't have time to go home and change. And Carl said, "Put this on. This will go. We got and take one of my white shirts. I had on gray trousers. Wear one of my white shirts in a black tie. It was a scandal." Everyone, I went to Maxine's, everyone, in, it was a scandal. A black man at a black side dinner in Maxine's with a dressing gown on. Now listen, it wasn't just a bathrobe. It was a cashmere black piped in satin, French silk satin tassels. <laughs> Love you. And it was dope. And I walked into Maxine's and the Red Sea parted and the jaws dropped all of Paris. And the next day, I got on the phone with my best friend, Bette She says, Andre, you don't even know that's all they talked about. They are shocked, but it's very amusing. It was a sort of Social scandal, and I don't have any pictures of it because no one thought to take pictures. That was 1978. Uh, someone mm. drew it. Carl Lagerfeld drew it, but I don't know what that drawing is. It's probably disappeared. Shame on he you! did a, drawing of, he did a drawing of it. Shame
3: on you! Shame <laughs> on you! Great, the <laughs> best right, story well. in the book. Best story in the book, and I don't have a photo. But one of my favorite uh, photo. I'm gonna just let you know that was on page right. 177 when you <laughs> in that splendid multi-shot in Paris and. June of 2013, that picture right there, my friend. I hope you have that framed in your home. That is a picture. Or oh, you have the you're, you're on the balcony and in uh, your uh, Ralph Lauren uh, dinner suit. Uh, oh, I got that framed. Oh yeah. Oh my I god. That oh, my god. That. Oh, oh my god. Yeah, that oh my god. Thing. Oh my god. Andre, that, oh, I got
1: that frame. Oh, Andre, I, I got all those clothes. All uh, those clothes are uh, here. I uh, got oh, that. I that got right
3: this. there. I got that. That's this. a bad. Anybody, that's a bad that's, look right there. That's a, that that is a picture that says I have made it, my man. Because I've been in Paris. Uh, I, I, like <laughs> got the, woo, woo. I want to thank you for coming on my show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Rashford,
1: I enjoyed talking to you, and I want to come back to your show. Absolutely. Book
3: absolutely. Right. Thank you, my friend. You stay safe out there. Yeah, and okay. I keep, I'll keep i support this on my social media. I'll support it okay. on my fan club. Get the word out. Plus, my wife knows you. Okay? Thank you, my give, friend.
1: Give best regards to your wife, okay?
3: Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, Rashawn. <laughs> Bye-bye.
3: I'm Rashawn McDonald. Hi. If you want to hear more Money Making Conversation uh, interviews, please go go to MoneyMakingConversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I'm your host.
0: In this season of giving, Kohl's has gifts for all your loved ones. For those who like to keep it cozy, find fleeces, sweaters, loungewear, blankets, and throws. Or support minority-owned or founded brands by giving gifts from Human Nation and Shea Moisture. Look through your children's eyes and you will discover the true magic of a forest.
1: Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.